Revelation chapter 11. This is the ninth in our series. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Probably uh, not a section of Scripture that you're all that familiar with. So uh, I hope that uh, this time together will be one that is enlightening and uh, is helpful to each one of us as we continue in our path, in our walk with our Lord Jesus. So if you, you are, if you are able, if you'll stand with me in the reading of God's Word from Revelation chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. John is writing here, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trump and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah and He will reign forever and ever. After the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, the One who is and who was, because You have taken Your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within His temple was seen the ark of His covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we uh, take this time to spend in uh, what has puzzled 
many throughout history. We pray that you will give us the spirit of wisdom that we will not only understand, but then also apply the truths of Scripture. That you have called us to open this book, to read it today, and to know what it means for us. Thank you, Lord, for being present in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit's presence at work now in our midst. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was the, the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going directly to heaven. We were all going directly the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present day. Charles Dickens, in A uh, Tale of Two Cities, writes a remarkable book set in historical context of the French Revolution. But the beginning of his novel could very well be introducing these next few chapters of the book of Revelation. For it too is going to be about a tale of two cities. It too speaks of the best and worst times. Times of wisdom and foolishness. Belief and incredulity. Light and darkness. Hope and despair. It in fact describes very well the world since the time of Christ and as it is today and as it will be until He returns again. So let me begin by just saying as we enter this oftentimes very confusing passage that this book of Revelation is the most well-known example of apocalyptic literature. We see this kind of literature as I told you last week in the Old Testament and in other non-biblical writing. From every example we have of this, we need to understand that this is all very highly symbolic metaphorical language. So uh, while the impetus of many to interpret the imagery literally is commendable really on one level, that type of interpretation though does a very horrible disservice to the actual text. Now I, uh, I understand that there are many different views and I've read them all, or many of them, uh, and interpretations of this chapter. For instance, some uh, interpret the temple pictured here to be the reconstructed great temple, which will happen sometime in the future in Jerusalem, depending on who you read as to when that will happen. They, many believe that these two witnesses to be two literal people, and many believe that they are Elijah and Moses come back to life during the great tribulation. Now these are all quite interesting positions and they are held by a large swath of the Western church today, and has been popularized in fictional literature that uh, I'm guessing you, many of you have read. But uh, if you've been exposed to that kind of view, you'll find what I have to say today somewhat unexpected. But let me begin by assuring you that uh, my understanding of Revelation here is formed not by my own imagination, nor does it come from recent commentators, but by the majority of the church throughout the last 2,000 years. 
And by the way, it was the majority view of the Protestant reformers. See, this beloved book has been a great comfort to the church throughout history, and especially the church that has gone and is going through persecution. So uh, I'm going to invite you to keep your Bibles open, and as we take a closer look at this, but I'm going to ask you to turn a, a, few, page, a few verses back. Now, uh, just like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, John is called to take a little scroll and eat it. It's the beginning of what we'll find here in chapter 11 is what's happening as he eats that scroll. But it began in chapter 10, verse 9. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, please turn back a few verses there. Chapter 10, verse 9 reads this way. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. See, this uh, is much like what we see in the Old Testament prophetic book of uh, Ezekiel, if uh, you've ever looked at that book, as he too is instructed to do similar symbolic actions. See, what is essentially being said here is that the Word of God is sweet, for it's truthful, and it comes from God Himself. But it sours in the stomach because the message is filled with very unpleasant truths. Truths about suffering and sorrow. So let me uh, get right to what the symbolism means in, in our chapter, as believed again by the majority of Christians throughout the history of the church. And for those of you who like to take notes, uh, you'll find in the middle of your bulletin there an outline, which I'm going to fill in some of these blanks for you. And I'd like to give you, right from the beginning, points one to three on your outline, and then explain them. First, uh, the temple is the church. The two witnesses are that part of the church that must suffer martyrdom until Jesus returns. And then point three is this. The great city is the world, the nations, the powers of this world. The worldviews and ideologies that oppose the Lord. Now let me... Uh, begin by giving you a biblical background for all of this. The temple of the Old Covenant was a, just a foreshadowing of the glory of Jesus Christ. It was, of course, the place where the law of Moses was preserved, to which Jesus, of course, is now the fulfillment. It was the place of revelation and relationship where God met and spoke to His people. Now, though, we hear God and see God and meet God, where? In Jesus. It was the place of sacrifice also, that temple, where forgiveness of sins was received. For that, we go now to Jesus. For we only find forgiveness in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Israel worshipped and celebrated in the temple in Jerusalem. We now worship in spirit and truth regardless of where we are. To meet God, to talk with God, to worship God, you no longer come to a building. 
or a tent, you come to Jesus. Jesus is the temple of God. And we, the church, are the body of Jesus. And here at Parkway, we are a part of that. And therefore, we, His church, make up the temple in which God is pleased to live. Do you realize that the Shekinah glory of God now lives permanently and powerfully in us through the Holy Spirit? Do you realize that? In Ephesians, Paul refers to Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And he puts it this way, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's Ephesians 2, 21-22 for those of you taking notes. And then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Peter uses the same kind of description of the church in his second letter. He says you are living stones that God is building into His spiritual temple. And what's more, you are holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Paul makes it very plain. For we are the temple of the living God. And amazingly, he he brings together several Old Testament passages which prophesied about the coming of the end-time temple, including Ezekiel chapter 37, where God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Remember, Paul here is referencing this passage to apply to the church. The church in his day and throughout all time until Christ comes again. So now let me give you point four on your outline. Beginning with the incarnation and consummating in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, together with the building of his spiritual body, that is the church, God is fulfilling his promise of a temple in which he will forever dwell. Now, uh, there are some today who teach that in fulfillment of this text, or fuller fulfillment even, in Revelation, that a temple will once again be built in Jerusalem where currently you can find the Dome of the Rock, the third holiest place for Muslims. Now, I don't know whether that will happen or not, though I'm guessing not because of the clear symbolic nature of this text. But whether that happens or not, this is the next point on your outline the only temple in which God is now and forever will be pleased to dwell is Jesus Christ and the church, His spiritual body. The Word of God became flesh and made His dwelling among us. 
The church isn't some, a, simply a nice intermediate idea until God can get His regular plans going again with Israel. And the church isn't just a cultural institution or a nice social group meeting felt needs. We are the family of God. We here at Parkway EPC are the family of God. United by a new identity in Jesus Christ. Gathered to glorify God. To encourage one another in the faith. And this, this is where God dwells. Yeah, I very much want you to remember this. That this is where God dwells. He in the person of the Holy Spirit is pleased to dwell here and be active here. This is and must be the core of our vision and mission here at Parkway. We must have a settled and firm belief that this is where God is pleased to dwell, where He's pleased to do His work of maturing His people in the faith, while at the same time sending us out as His missionaries, His ambassadors to this community and beyond. Now, uh, Let's move to the next major uh, section of this text. See, much like the Old Testament prophets who are called to act in different ways that are symbolic of the message that they are bringing, so too John is called to make a measurement of this temple. In other words, to take the measure of the people of God for the purpose of restoring and reviving the church. It's what he does with the letters at the beginning of Revelation, as we saw. And it's what he's going to be doing throughout the rest of this book. So it's a part of my calling as your intentional interim pastor. But see, John is instructed to exclude the outer court. Do you see that? What he does here in the Greek is to mix his metaphors. Going from trampling on the outer court to trampling on part of the very holy city. And so here is the point, as has been again understood throughout the vast majority of the church. Part of the church suffers persecution. Not all of it, but a part of it. The trampling of the outer court symbolizes part of the church suffering persecution. See, in John's day and throughout the first and second century, this was something that happened quite regularly in Rome. See, there were persecutions throughout Rome, but for the most part, persecution tended to be isolated to certain parts of the church. And it's true today, in our day too. Certain parts of the church around the world are suffering persecution while other parts are not. If uh, you've never done so, I'd, cons- uh, I'd uh, certainly encourage you to learn more about the persecuted church worldwide Voices of the Martyrs is a good place to start. I'll be talking more about the persecuted and martyred church as we go through the book of Revelation because God has a lot to say about them. Now let me uh, address the length of times that are mentioned here. They're, again, they're very symbolic. First, uh, 42 months is mentioned. See, In the ancient world, a month was considered to be 30 days long and a year to have 360 days. So 42 months times 30 equals, any mathematicians out there? 1,260 days. Then there's a mention of three and a half years. Three and a half times 360 is 
1260 days. What a coincidence, coincidence, huh? Not really. See, these periods are all equal to one another. And the basic meaning of the numbers is the next point on your outline. The measurement means a period of intense tribulation and affliction, while the power of God's Word is simultaneously going forth. Let me talk about another number here. If I were uh, to say 9-11 to you, what would you think of? Yeah, you'd probably be thinking about the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001. So too, when a first century Jew or Gentile Christian heard the words three and a half years, they would think of the time of the period of Antiochus Epiphany. See, from 171 to 165 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes persecuted the Jews and continued with his horrible abominations. And during the last three and a half years of that period, the temple was used for heathen sacrifices. In fact, for three and a half years, there was very intense persecution. And this ended by the, was ended by the Maccabean Revolt, which uh, defeated Antiochus and the sanctuary was cleansed. And it's in that period, by the way, that arises the celebration of what uh, the Jews celebrate today as Hanukkah. Hanukkah. See, the point here is that the witnessing church, represented by the two witnesses here, prophesies for 1260 days, and at the end, they're killed by the beast. So here's how I would summarize the major point. The, tro- the church is trodden underfoot for 42 months or 1260 days. In other words, those who oppose God's work and persecute the church are allowed to trample over a per- portion of God's people for a limited amount of time. See, none of this happens because God is somehow losing a battle. God allows this to happen in certain times and places in His perfect and infinite wisdom. It's vital for us to understand that God's enemies are active, but God remains sovereign. God allows His people to suffer, sometimes even in extreme ways, for a limited time. See, God's people will experience tribulation and trials between Christ's first coming and His second coming. I want you to hear this as much as as much of the church throughout history has around the world, this was a comforting message to them. Even as they're suffering, for they know that none of it is happening outside of God's sovereign hand. As Jesus put it in the Olivet Discourse, for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And at the same time, there are two witnesses or a portion of the church which is they're never merely alone. That's why it's two. But a portion of the church stands as witnesses to Christ's work and to the Gospel. Which, uh, by the way, here's an allusion to Zechariah chapter 4 where we get a very similar picture that's used a little differently. The entire chapter of Zechariah 4 is alluded here. See, those witnesses are God's anointed. His people elected to serve and represent Him. So why do I say that these two witnesses symbolize a portion 
of the worldwide church and not just two particular people, as so oftentimes that's interpreted today? Well, because uh, they're described as being witnessed by people of every people group of the earth. In other words, they are representatives of the church of God around the world as they witness for the gospel. See, the power of God comes through their witness, or as John symbolically describes it, fire comes out of their mouths. And some of this description of signs and wonders accompanying their message has been the witness of many missionaries who bring the gospel to areas of the world that have never before received it. God does work those type of miraculous signs where the gospel is first penetrating in power. Now this doesn't mean that God's witnesses for the gospel, His missionaries, will find things going easy. In fact, they're attacked and killed by the beast after they've finished their testimony and their bodies lie in the streets for three and a half days, which would be an insult and a disgrace to the dead in Jesus' day. In other words, they suffered shame and public disgrace before the whole world. The nations celebrate their death, but they come back to life. In other words, they're escorted up to heaven, symbolized by the church inheriting eternal life. In other words, God will have the last word. Now, uh, let me get uh, back to the main theme which I introduced uh, the, this sermon with, the two cities. Remember? See, we have here, on the one hand, one city symbolized by Sodom and all the moral depravity that it represents, and also Egypt, which represents oppression and slavery. The city is also literarily linked later to the people of every tribe, language, and nation that gloat over the deaths of God's anointed witnesses. The city is also going to be uh, called Babylon later, pointing to the pride and arrogance of the nations. And then we're going to be seeing another city soon. We don't see it right now, but this is again the introduction to it. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. That city is the New Jerusalem, God's city, which is the exact opposite of this city. Here's how James makes the point that I want to bring out. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Paul in 2 Timothy 3.4 describes the same issue this way, referring to the values of the sinful city. They are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And John in his first letter says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, the world or the sinful city here is really the philosophies, ideals, actions, or worldviews that are opposed to God. Or more precisely, the whole complex of human institutions values and traditions that knowingly or unwittingly are arrayed against our God. See, John wants us to see clear delineations between God's values and the values of the sinful city. He wants the churches to ask certain questions of themselves, those churches that he wrote to at the beginning. Have you been submitting to the Spirit or compromising with the world? Do you join with the witnesses 
or with Sodom and Egypt. See, it all comes on gradually. One little compromise by, to the world, followed by another, and each subsequent one is easier than the last. It's, like, uh, it's much like the way I gain weight. You know, I make one small compromise, then another, then I give it up altogether. The, uh, a short uh, while back in the journal called First Things, there was a report that a group of Episcopalian priests in Brooklyn had imported young men from Brazil to gauge in acts of grotesque sexual nature. By the way, that story broke first in Penthouse magazine. Penthouse quoted Long Island Bishop Oris G. J. Walker this way, If they were consenting adults, my position is that they were certainly free to take that action. Penthouse offered this bitterly ironic observation, by the way. These men became playthings for priests whose commitment to the Scriptures had long ago been replaced by a pursuit of pleasure that would fit nicely in Sodom and Gomorrah. When Penthouse offers such a critique of the Christian leaders, I think the situation is really quite dark. How did that happen? Well, it happened slowly, as the Episcopal Church had made one small compromise after another, all along the way abandoning the truths of Scripture. It's one compromise after another with the sinful city. We allow a small white lie to turn into a lifelong practice of deception. We allow one small tidbit of gossip to grow into a lifelong practice. We allow one small lust to blossom into addiction to pornography. We allow unforgiveness to turn into bitterness, which turns into anger and hate and resentment. See, there are two cities. One is God's with God's values. That's the New Jerusalem. The other is described as Sodom or Egypt or eventually will be described as Babylon. See, we, we were bought with a price. We are not our own. Our lives and our devotion belong to someone else. We serve one of two masters. We're devoted to one of two cities. While we might be Americans, our first primary, secondary, even tertiary commitments and identity lie with the heavenly city. Not with the worldly city. You know, it's been sometimes said of Christians that they are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Well, let me suggest that in recent times I'd have to say that uh, Western Christians are so worldly minded that they're no heavenly good. As C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And so point seven on your outline is this. 
the two witnesses is the church that boldly proclaims the gospel. While they are put to death and receive true everlasting life, they also change things in this world, at least for a time. As uh, Tertullian put it in the second century, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. See, we too are called to be faithful witnesses and even suffer sometimes the persecution of this world. See, the symbolism here points to the safety of the church. The safety of the church as though is not on earth, but only in the presence of our Savior. The temple cannot be touched. See, the final symbolism is God's ultimate triumph. God triumphs on the cross and in the resurrection, and He triumphs in the lives of His faithful witnesses And He will once again triumph at the end of this age when the final trumpet sounds. You see the Ark of the Covenant mentioned here? This is symbolic of having full access to God, to His holy presence. That's the ultimate reward of God's people, His church. And so I need to ask you, do you know the vision and mission that God has given us here at Parkway? If you don't, it's it's on the front of your bulletin as it is every Sunday. Let me restate that basic vision in other words. It is a vision filled with God's kingdom. God's city. And our mission is to witness to the sinful, fallen city all around us. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, the symbolism here is quite profound. And so sadly, we miss it. Much of the church gets it throughout history, throughout this world. But sadly, we in our comfort, we in our compromise with this world, we miss it. We miss the calling on our lives to be witnesses to this world, witnesses to your love, to your grace, to your compassion, to stand up as witnesses no matter what the cost, no matter what the call. We miss it. We miss it because we're too busy trying to get comfortable with this world. Lord, we pray. We pray today that we will love this world in the way that You do. Love this world enough to tell the truth. To tell the truth with our words and with our actions. Loving others to real life in Jesus, which is the vision You have given us. It's sometimes very hard sometimes takes boldness and courage to step out into the lives of others, knowing it might mean a sense of shame. Lord, we pray that you will embolden us, embolden us with the gospel, that we might indeed be the witnesses to your saving work. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
I invite you now in, the, in response to our sermon message this morning to turn to the back side page of your bulletin and join with me in our corporate prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I have sinned times without number and guilty of pride and unbelief and of neglect to see you in my daily life. My sins and shortcomings 